Joining me today on the Just You Right Show, author, blogger, and all-around good guy, Tony Fletcher, next on The Culture Catch. I'd like to thank today's sponsor, Podkive. For all of your web hosting needs, visit podkive.com. Hey, I'm very happy to be joined today with my friend Tony Fletcher. He's just written a book called All Hopped Up and Ready to Go, Music from the Streets of New York, 1927 to 77. Tony, it's been a while. I mean, the last time we saw each other, we were having lunch. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while, but we've known each other a long time. Yeah, I think as long as uh, I've been on the scene, you've been on the scene. I I guess I got here before you did. I got here in 81. Then you did get here before me. I got to New York in like 87, 88. I remember going to a couple of parties with you. I remember for some reason going to a party with you that uh, was a models party. It's the kind of, kind of thing that I guess. To, Gee, maybe figure. maybe it was you got me the invite, and I'm like, this this guy this guy knows how to get into parties with models. I should be his friend. <laughs> you know, we all go through that phase as young guys in New York. Absolutely, you know, you're models here. You're you know from the Midwest or from UK, and you're like, hmm, boys, testosterone, models. Absolutely, go open, open bar, open bar, <laughs> music. But you know, this is the thing that really struck me. It took a, a Brit to write hmm. a book about New York that is, is this exhaustive and this well done. And it reads, it, it's not laborious, you know, I mean, you read it like you're reading fiction almost, like you can't even believe that these mm-hmm. music scenes have happened, these little pocket of yeah. pockets of music scenes have happened all over the island of Manhattan, Long Island, Brooklyn, Queens, yeah. the Bronx, let's not forget the other boroughs, and it's extraordinary. I started thinking today, almost arrogantly, that New York truly is the hub of the world when it comes to music. Uh, both music that was adopted and adapted from other indigenous forms, as well as creating forms here. Yep. What? Uh, tell me, walk me through the process as why you chose this as your next book. I kind of actually felt what you felt going into the book and wanted to tell that story, which is, you know, I lived in New York City for, for almost 20 years. I, I moved up to uh, the Woodstock area a couple of years back. Um, you know, when I first got to New York City from, from London, uh, I mean, the first day I set foot in New York City, just as, a, as actually as a journalist on, a, on, a, on a, an assignment, I, I just f- had one of those falling in love with New York City moments and spent the next 18 months of my life trying to figure out how to move to New York City and realized, by the way, that all my sort of uh, inherent anti-American, anti-New you know, York prejudice that I, I developed in the UK through the punk rock years... Um, was was really so much BS because New York City, as far as I was concerned, was, was what London was aspiring to be. Um, and, you know, I ended up getting to live here and I just saw all these music scenes had, had had their roots in New York City and that somebody needed to tell the story about them. And so the the foundation of the book had already been laid. So were yeah. you were you working on it back then or were you just formulating? No, I was, uh, you know, a, a, an outline. If no, you the idea basically kind of probably came to me. Um, somewhere in the earlier part of this decade. I'm starting to realize now that I'm doing some interviews for the book, it may well have been uh, tied in somewhere around 9-11, a sort of focus on New York. And uh, it may have gone me focused because I think somewhere after that, I started trying to actually get the the proposal together. And, um, you know, you're talking about it being exhaustive. I mean, I'm glad you said the writing's uh, not laborious, but the, you know, it's been, it has been a long piece of work. And I wrote this big book on, on Keith Moon, you know, a decade ago, that was 600 pages. It felt like a breeze compared to this book. Really? Yeah. I guess I, I, when I was reading it, it's like the biggest challenge must have been, and I read the foreword, obviously, is what to leave out, what to yes. include. It, you know, I mean, each chapter could truly be its own book. Yes. Uh, and you uh, you kind of pick things that you think will interest a reader as an overview, 
And within even that, uh, th- that micro view of a specific scene, whether it's in the Latin Quarter mm-hmm. or you know the, uh, the, the folk scene in the village, you're picking key things that, and yet still finding anecdotes and stories that I don't ever recall reading. Right. So that must have been a challenge because you said a lot of this has been written before. Yeah. What do you include? What do you don't include? What's what's germane to telling the story correctly? Right. I think that um, one of the things I was really trying to do with this book is you're, you're absolutely right. Each chapter is not only could be a book in itself, but it sort of has been a book in itself. I mean, you can go to the bookstore or the library and pick up uh, books on punk rock, disco, hip hop, the folk scene and the mambo, you know, and the Latin scene. Um uh, Mambo, you know, probably has had less written about it than some of the others, the vocal R&B groups. But nobody's ever kind of joined the dots to show how, uh, for example, you know, right at the point that rock and roll hit in 54, you know, the biggest thing in New York City at the time was was the Mambo in Midtown. And that was sort of the R&B of its day. And the key players from that music scene saw that they were kids now starting to kind of go onto the streets and do this vocal music. I'm talking about people like Morris Levy and George Goldner, and they switched their attention. Um, if you if you examine the vocal... Now, for those who are listening, yeah. th- those are the guys who are the producers. They, were owning, they own the labels. Yes. They were the tastemakers of the day. Yes, absolu- absolutely. I mean, actually, George Goldner is an incredible character who shows up in half a dozen chapters in this book. He's a... Something of an unsung hero. Morris Levy, uh, on the other hand, was known for his mob connections um, and was not and was not a music person. And there's an ongoing thread in the book. You know, we get into anecdotes. I mean, George Goldner has probably had maybe the best years in the history of the music business. Uh, the list of, of things that he heard from from putting out the first Mambo records to Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers, G by the Crows, the Shangri-Las later, getting back into Latin music. Uh, God, the... Um, a uh, whole other number of things in a, with record labels I didn't even write about. Uh, he had an incredible gambling habit and c- habitually lost all his profits at the racetrack. And when his labels got in debt, um, he would turn to Morris Levy to help get him out of debt. And Morris Levy would simply take his labels as collateral. And this happened like like three times over. I mean, you know, which is why along the way, you know, the credit for uh, the songwriting credit for a song like Why Do Fools Fall in Love, which George Goldner, for better or for worse, or rightly or wrongly, put his name on as a co-writer of that song. Uh, well, a lot of guys did that in the day. A lot of guys did that. And you know what? I could get to that. And I'm saying rightly or wrongly, for better or worse. But what guys didn't do in that day, in those days, is when he actually sold out his publishing to Morris Levy. Morris Levy simply took uh, uh, George Goldner's name off and put his on. That's extraordinary. Yeah, it is extraordinary. And I actually traced that. You're asking, you know, I went to the Lincoln Center Library and traced these kind of sheet musics. And you just see that one day... Just, <laughs> it just it, switches. It just switches. It's like, no, actually, I co-wrote it. Oh, my God. And then that makes me suspect of a lot of the R&B music, you know, from Atlantic Records, which, you know, was really the first indie label to yeah. really have that mass yeah. push. I guess Ray Charles helped propel that as yeah. well as some of the other acts. And you see, you know, Ahmed Erdogan's name on. Yeah, I think Ahmed Erdogan did actually co-write a lot of songs. One one thing I said in George Goldner's favor, um, I'm mentioning this guy because, you know, he, um, by rights, he should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's probably never going to be there because he was too caught up with Morris Levy. And there's a there's obviously like a Stigma. cloud. Yeah. But he's, he, and he's not enough of a bad guy to be kind of, you know, people like talking about Morris Levy because he's mafia. People, you know, unfortunately love, the mafia yeah and but george golden was simply a kind of idiot savant who had these genius ears and kept losing money in the racetrack and got tied up with the mob so he's not a good enough guy to get in the rock and roll hall of fame he's not a bad enough guy to be on the science kind of you know the the hall of 
you know, whatever you want to call it. So the bad boys, the bad boys. Yeah. Um, but you know, talking about people taking songs and putting their names on it, just just to kind of give George Goldner a break at the, the at, right at the start here. You know, John Lomax um, went off and discovered folk musicians. He he took half the songwriting for Goodnight Irene, um, which Led Belly sung and the Weavers made famous. Right. And you know, I then I have no idea what John Lomax did except you know. Record the song. We, we could probably devote a whole show just to uh, artists who have been ripped off oh, of by the man. Yes, oh, of know? course. And it's inevitable, I guess, when you sign on the dotted line, although today everything is so micromanaged by mm -hmm. attorneys, it's increasingly more difficult, unless you sell your publishing because you're a drug addict yeah. or you know your home is in foreclosure, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, I think what's easy for us, for our generation, to lose sight is all the fantastic music that happened before our music scenes. Yes before punk rock, before acid rock, you know. There was a whole vitality in New York City. You know, I always considered myself to be a pretty big jazz aficionado. But then when you read the connecting, like you said, the Latin music that permeated from big band into the bebop world, and you make that connection, I go, wow, that, I don't know why I never thought of that. That makes perfect sense, connecting those dots. Yeah. And the way that those guys traversed uh, those musical venues and were inspired by each other. Talk to that point. Well, I, the bebop, I, I love the bebop scene yeah. in New York. Is I actually thought that was one of the things, one reason I ended up starting the book with, with that, I was very nervous about even touching the J word, the jazz word, because obviously it's a, it's a language unto itself. Sacred, very sacred. And there are people and, who speak that language much better than me, or you, I'm sure. Absolutely. Um, but I realized, and you were talking about connecting the dots, this, is, this part is important. I realized that I could pick up books on the, the New York jazz scene or the bebop scene. I could pick up the, the handful of books on the Latin music scene, and they didn't speak about each other. And yet I was doing my research, and I you know, honed in on this guy, Mario Bowser. Very, uh, he only died you know, uh, about a decade ago. Um, he must have been in his hundreds. <laughs> he was 90. Yeah. You know, and he came to New York at the age of 16 from, from Havana. Right. And then he came back. He promised he would move as soon as he was old enough. And he, he kept his word, came back three years later in 1930. So I opened the book in 1927. Imagine I traced his, managed to kind of finally figure out which year he had, he had arrived because that's one of the things that just, you know, that all these different years people say he arrived in New York City. He arrived in 1927. You know, you figure out what was going on the week he arrived, all this wonderful jazz music. And yet, you know, he brought, he, he was one of those fixers, you know, movers and shakers. So as well as being a great trumpet player, great musician, great band leader, he hooked people up with each other. So he got uh, Dizzy Gillespie, his first job with Cab Calloway. Mario Bowser was playing with Cab Calloway. So Mario Bowser and Cab and Dizzy Gillespie played together with Cab Calloway, become best friends, start melding the, the, the you know, what would you call like a black American jazz with a, a more Latin jazz. Right. And, you know, later on, um, Dizzy Gillespie says to, you know, Mario Bowser, you know, I, I realize my music's not rhythmic enough now. This bebop is like getting up its own ass, I guess. And, uh, <laughs> you know, w what can you give me? And what, what do you recommend? And Mario Bowser says, Channel Pozo just came to town. He's looking for a gig. Channel Pozo was the original gangster, basically, guy from Havana who had left Havana after getting shot over a publishing dispute, funnily enough. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he was a composer, a dancer and maybe one of the best percussionists you know ever to come out of Cuba um, and Channel Poser went off and, and did Cubana B Cubana Bop with Dizzy Gillespie so you know there wasn't enough written about how these musics crossed over or the fact that Charlie Parker would and uh, Flip Wilson would do live gigs with Machito the Machito Orchestra right um, that have been recorded by the way these radio broadcasts that were recorded they're just fantastic you hear these Latin music but you hear this very obviously this bebop jazz being played over the top of it it must have been like what when punk rock collided with hip hop 
Yeah. You know, just taking two ethnic differences, colliding them into a thing or yeah. when you know, when hip hop was embracing jazz, I guess that makes a little bit more sense, but to marry those cultures mm-hmm. and you did truly as we not so much now, but you did have pockets. People lived in certain areas, yes. the Latin Quarter or the West yeah. Village. You stay or the East Village, you stayed in your neighborhood. You did, and I think actually, if, given that we're just talking about this one scene, well, that scene was kind of came together more in Midtown, and you had a point that the Palladium, um, the Palladium that was on 49th and Broadway, was this mambo club um, and just Latin club that was bringing in whites, Jews, Italians, blacks, Latinos, Puerto Ricans, um, bringing in every single race. But right around the corner from there is where Birdland opened up and the Royal Roost opened up. And so these bebop clubs. So the guys would just, on their breaks, would just walk from their Latin club to the bebop club and watch their friends and rivals and then come back. And one would, one thing that was interesting is, generally speaking, the Latin guys were invited to sit in with the jazz acts because they could play both. And very few jazz musicians were invited to sit in with the Latin acts because they couldn't, they didn't have the, the rhythm. They didn't have the rhythm. Yeah. Now, something else happened, you know, Back in the day, you know, the hipsters would listen to swing and, and, mm-hmm. and jump music, and they yeah. would dance to it. And then when bebop started migrating into that scene, suddenly it became a listener's yes. venue. Yeah. And now you're getting smaller crowds because it's intellectualized a little yeah. bit more. These guys were very smart people mm-hmm. playing incredibly complex musical patterns. Yeah. Talk to that point, Tony. Well, that's very true. You know the word hipster, which we throw around... Um, uh, I'm heading out to Greenpoint tonight for a reading. So, you know, the word hipster gets thrown out a lot around around Brooklyn these days. But it was actually, the word was kind of created around the bebop um, people. And there is a quote that I've got in the book that I, that I can't remember verbatim, but it's a, it was a diatribe that somebody wrote against a hipster who was basically too cool for his own good and, you know, knew the music better than the musicians and, and didn't like to pay for gigs because, hey, should, you know, should shouldn't be about the bread, man. Hey, I always feel that way, man. <laughs> I still feel that way. Um, hipster are just cheap. <laughs> but Dizzy, Dizzy Gillespie, you know, there are these very interesting common threads that run through almost every music scene. And Dizzy Gillespie, who's a character in the first few chapters, um, you know, he took his orchestra outside of New York City, uh, several different times to different places and it didn't work like first goes with charlie parker to los angeles in 1946 this one's kind of well documented and um they emptied out the club within a week and they had to come home i mean they went from being like the stars from new york are arriving come and hear this new bebop music and by about the fifth night the club was empty Uh, that was a great i love that story and and i guess there's there was always that pride with new york musicians like will it play in cali they're always like five years behind us in the music what's happening and what's hip i think there was some truth to that yeah and then dizzy took his music then he got san francisco was different though than la yes or was you know the san francisco scene a little later on when the beats started infiltrating that that would be very 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 true um you know dizzy built up a bigger orchestra and then took it down south and um another jazz writer said that was actually the moment that jazz stopped being a, a dance music um a ballroom music because dizzy took it south and people couldn't dance to it they right. were they were literally standing there. He had wanted to play theaters, but he had been put into dance halls and people were standing there saying, we can't dance to this. Right. And it did, it did shift the music, you know, and that has a knock-on effect. That's why maybe the next dance music was the mambo and then it's rock and roll. And, you know, these things all have, all have an effect. Now, within the book, you know, I, 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 I'm remembering as I go, because it is exhaustive and there's so many wonderful anecdotes and stories, but things that stick out to me uh, right this moment is when Woody Guthrie landed here. Yeah. And, you know, how he 
had his taste of New York mm-hmm. and his success in New York. Mm-hmm. And that's a great, uh, that connection to New York City, the folk scene and, yes. and what it gave birth to. And you mentioned Lomax before. Folk is an interesting one because by, by definition, folk music is not an urban music. It's, if there's any, you know, if you were to flick through this book and say, okay, tell me about how all these scenes came from New York City, you would, you would probably go, okay, folk. There's no way folk came from New York, right. and you would be right. Okay, so we say that first off. Folk music is the music of the people, so it's international, or it's Appalachian, or it's Native American, or it's whatever. But what definitely, absolutely happened, and it happened in, um, in 1940, was uh, uh, musicians came to New York, and Lead Belly and Josh White had come up from the Deep South in the 30s, and then uh, Woody Guthrie hit town. And they all played the same show. It was a benefit for the, the Grapes of Wrath. Um, so so benefit for the workers. It was called the Grapes of Wrath Evening. Woody Guthrie was the only guy who had lived that. He was obviously from the Dust Bowl. Then he'd gone and followed the migration out from Oklahoma, out to California. There he'd become a success. You know, he was not an idiot. He, 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 he was great at performing as the kind of, you know, country rube. But he was a smart guy. He wrote for the communist newspaper out in California. He had a radio show. Came to New York, and on his way to New York, he kept hearing the song "God Bless America," and um, you know his experience was like, I don't know about "God Bless America." <laughs> I mean, I mean, we just gone through the Great Depression. My people are poor, and he rewrote the song as he moved east, and he rewrote originally. Now it's important y- to note, that, yeah. You know, we're talking about cafe society. God bless America. Yes. So it's a very, very rosy-colored picture being yes. painted in cafe society Manhattan. Yeah. Then Woody living with the real Americans. Yes. And so he he wrote um, he rewrote the song as he moved east. And uh, uh, initially, I think it was "God Bless America" for me. He tried to add that, and then it became um, it be- also, and then it became you know this land was made for you and me, right. and then it became this land is your land. Right. And uh, that so that song now now you would think Woody Guthrie wrote that song must have written. But I, be, it. Well, let, I want to yeah. interrupt you. I would imagine most of our listeners don't even know that Woody Guthrie, unless they're music fans, yeah. that he wrote that song. And how poignant the lyrics are. It's one of those songs you learn as a school kid. Right. And you really don't have a connection to that historical perspective right. that you're sharing with us. Yeah. I think that's very important for listeners to understand that when you go back and listen to this song, regardless of whose rendition, particularly if you hear Woody's rendition, yeah. the poignancy is that much more brilliant. I think so. You've got to put yourself... This We're getting outside of New York, but it's important because New, you know, Woody came from Oklahoma from an incredibly devastating environment, personal devastating environment i mean you know houses burning down um crazy parents you know a lot of i mean a lot of really bad so quite apart from the poverty and the dust bowl goes to california decides to take will gears greer's invitation to come to new york and perform at this show and and actually not just to perform at this show but to come and try try his hand in new york imagine him traveling east jumping the trains hearing God Bless America sung by, I think it was Kate Smith, if I've got the name right, all the way as he comes across America, the Irving Berlin song. Of course, Irving Berlin is a, a Jewish immigrant, a, uh, New York, you know, so there's a New York connection there. But he gets to New York and he stays in a flea pit hotel called the Hanover Hotel in Times Square. And that's where he wrote the song. And th- it's on the hotel writing paper. Right. So This Land Is Your Land was written in New York City. It's fantastic. Yeah. That's a it's fantastic It's important for story. people to know that. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, he has a success with his radio show, yeah. and then, uh, you know, he started getting pushed into directions he didn't like, and he just quit. He, up he and did quit. quit. And some people And he was wildly that. successful. I mean, he now had the money that he needed to raise his family. Yeah. He's, uh, I mean, talk about, you know, we talk about artistic temperaments, and people do have a habit, art- artists, of shooting themselves in the foot. Woody moved to New York, 
Um, although the Dust Bowl ballads, which are now considered, you know, just a, a, a stone classic, right. apparently only sold a thousand copies at the time. I mean, it was a failure. But it was the Velvet Underground of its day. It was the absolutely. Um, and there's another point to that that Josh White and and Leadbelly were both being uh, had both at the same exactly the same time put out albums of Southern prison songs, mm. all for major labels. So I need to make the point that the major labels were looking at these characters coming in, these folk characters like Woody Guthrie. You come from the Dust Bowl, so you write songs about the Dust Bowl. At least you get to write your own. Leadbelly, you're black and from the south, and you've done time. Josh White, we assume you've you must have done time because you're black and from the south. You guys can sing you know, prison songs. Right. And this is folk music. That was the folk music before Woody, Leadbelly, Josh White, Pete Seeger, all started getting together and making it really political and actually claiming it for themselves, um, mm. largely under the name of the Almanac Singers, right, which sure. was like the punk rock group of its day. Um, but you were talking about Woody did come to New York and even though Dust Bowl Ballads was not a success, he got bookings on the radio shows because he's such a good talk. He was funny. He was very, 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 very funny. He talked about, like at his opening show in New York, he talked about, man, you know, these newspapers, they come out the night before. Like, so you always get to find out tomorrow's news tonight, but you never actually found out the truth about yesterday. <laughs> so yeah, very, very, very <laughs> funny guys. He gets these radio shows and he's earning so much money. He actually, I think he writes around Lomax and says, they're throwing money at me faster than I can spend it. He rents an apartment on Central Park West, brings up his fam, brings his family in. And uh, a New York newspaper does a story with a pretty damn good headline. And they call it uh, Grapes Rough Turned to Wine? Question mark because they come and visit him in his apartment, and it hits home. He's also allowed his song, uh, Dusty Old Dust, so so long it's been good to know you, to be rewritten for um, Tobacco Company. Right. And he realizes, oh, my God, I've lived the New York dream, and this was not why I came to New York. So rather than uh, try and correct it, Woody Guthrie basically packs up the family and quits. And he comes back a year and a half later at the invitation, or two years later at the invitation of Pete Seeger and the Almanac Singers. Right. Great story. Thanks for sharing that. You know, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess let me pick out another story. You, you find, you know, Al Cooper gets his due here. Yeah. You know, now if you know music and you know Al's contribution to Dylan, but you know, you give Al Cooper his his due and, and who he was on the fringe of the music scene and how integral he was mm -hmm. to some very vital, influential acts. Not just with Dylan and playing, but you know, even his own things. Yeah, the blues project. Yeah. Um, Cooper's a fascinating character in his own right because it almost. Yeah, I should say I wrote a lot that ended up being edited out, and I think the book's better because of it. But I, I seem to remember writing pages about Al Cooper because he lived a classic New York story. He's, uh, he kind of came up uh, self-taught guitarist. He was playing professional guitar with, uh, with a group at the age of 14, 15. Then he goes to work in the Brill Building. Has a hit single. Has well, and by the way, you know we say the and Brill Building. And not a small hit single, by the way. Had a number one this time <laughs> and ring. Yeah. But actually, and here's Jerry the, Lewis's son, Gary Lewis in the Playboys. Yeah. Here's yeah. the real funny thing about that, though, because that was actually, I think, in 1964 or 65, Riders and Music had changed, and he knew it, and he he reached the pinnacle of his career. But he was smart enough to know that the music scene had was no longer going to be based in Midtown. And uh, Al Cooper, I should say, in case he ever heard this, would be the first to say it wasn't the Brill building, it was the music building. Right. Because all the hipper songwriters, publishers, musicians went to the music building, which was over the road from the Brill building. Right. The Brill building was old school. Right. Lieber and Stoller were in there, but everybody else, Donnie Kirshner and all his signings, uh, Spectre, S Skepta Records, all of those people, they were in the music building. Janice Ian. 
Uh, Janice Ian we should talk about in a minute. I well, love we'll her, talk her story. Yeah, okay. uh, but Al Cooper did was smart enough. He also um, went to school and was friends with uh, Tom and Jerry, otherwise known as Simon and Garfunkel. Right. So, um, so Al Cooper, he's in the music building. He's in the music building, which is the hipper songwriters building. And he would be the first to tell you that and insist that you know that. And it's too easy to say the Brill building. I can't say the Brill era. But Al um, was also into the folk music scene. And um, he was friends with Simon and Garfunkel and the same age as them. And they'd had hits as teenagers as Tom and Jerry, a hit. Um, he was working by a different name, performing in a, a folk club in Queens. And uh, then he gets this, finally gets his number one single, this Diamond Ring. But he's smart enough to know that the Midtown scene is not going to, it's on its way out. The Beatles have hit. And um, if anything, that song actually sounds like a Mers an American yeah, it does. version of Mersey Beat. I, I probably bought the single when I was like six. Right. I or I definitely remember hearing it a lot on the yeah, radio. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's okay. To me, it sounds like the lesser Mersey beat bands these days. Right. And um, so so Al, he's still, by the way, like 19, 20 years old at this point. I mean, it's just ob obscene. But he he recognizes that the action has shifted and people are telling him about this character, Bob Dylan, particularly Paul Simon, his friend, is saying, you know, listen to Bob Dylan. And he gets himself an invitation to a Bob Dylan session. And... Um, uh, this is one of my favorite. It music is a great. So you know, ever. it's been told a lot, but it doesn't. You know, it doesn't get any worse for for for, for retelling it because Bob Dylan um, is has got this song like a Rolling Stone, and they Bob Dylan doesn't rehearse stuff very much. He's actually he's actually rehearsed this one with Mike Bloomfield, I think, like once, which is more than he normally does anything. And he has the best session musicians, but he doesn't really care about the musicians. Like his producer just brings them in. Bob Dylan will run through a song, try it this way, try it that way. All right, hey, I think we got something. Let's go. And um, so all the all the instruments are taken, and Al Cooper is meant to be he's a guitarist by trade. He's meant to be just sitting in the control room. And uh, at one point, um, and I don't remember every musician's name at this point, but the guy on the Hammond moves the piano. Right. And uh, the producer is either out of the room or maybe taking one of his regular phone calls. And uh, Al just like slips in and decides to sit at the Hammond. And there's, there's something that exists on the tapes that finally came out because the producer comes back in the room and he's like, uh, what are you doing there? And uh, there's a nervous laugh. And Dylan actually says, ah, man, just run the tape. And so Al like tries playing along to like a Rolling Stone and he gets this like that, 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 that stab, that, that stab. Yeah. And as he says, you know, you hear it. He follows, he follows. He's a bit behind the beat. He's a bit behind the yeah. beat. And as the song progresses, he gets on top of the beat and gets more confident. And to Dylan's credit, to Dylan's undying credit, Dylan has never overproduced his music. Right. And the odd thing about that session, um, and to be fair, Grail Marcus wrote a little book about Like a Rolling Stone. I took some of my material from there. I should give right. props where they're due. Um, they did X number of takes that day. They only did one complete take that actually was, was releasable. And that's the one we hear. That's amazing. There, there were 12 other takes or so, all of which were either abandoned or had, had bum notes and could not have come out. Right. But they found the one take and it became the legendary song. Al Cooper, by the way, went from that to joining the, the Blues Project, taking a residency in, in you know, at the, the Cafe Wire, I think it was, or the Cafe Bazaar. And um, I would have to double check which place it, place it was. Cafe Agogo, I'm sorry. I was, it's the yeah, Cafe I was going to say Cafe Agogo. Yeah, I knew that was wrong as soon as I said it. And, uh, Come on, you only wrote the book. There's only a million facts you have I to know, remember. I know, but the Cafe Agogo was hip and the other two were not hip. And I knew as soon as I said it. But wait, you could say mistake. Hendrix played the Cafe Wa, though. He did play the Cafe Wa. And then it became hip. Well, it became hip because he played there. Although the gig that he got seen at by Keith Richards' girlfriend, who then kind of took took 
him under her wing and got Chaz Chandler to come and have a look at him was a gig with John Hammond and other people that was not at the Cafe Wire. And I think it was either at the Cafe Agogo or uh-huh. the Night Owl. It, they actually got Jimmy to sit in at another venue because the likes of Keith Richards and so on would not have gone to Cafe Wire. It wasn't nice. hip. Yeah. Very, very nice. Yeah. So anyway, so we got, <laughs> there are a <laughs> lot of tangents. How many tangents are we on I, right I now? I know. I was, you know, and I want to throw another one at you because here's another, to me, an unsung band. Yeah. From that era, the Rascals, the Young Rascals. Sure. And, and you know, you look at what they did to music and how they took the totally R&B. Totally unsung. Totally unsung. And, I, and you look at New York history of rock and roll and you say, oh, my God. Yeah. I remember my cousins having those records and they were just like, you talk, you put those on at a dance party yeah. and everyone's dancing. Well, a couple of people, you know, this is, a, a, I'm, I'm maybe going to blow my own trumpet very slightly about research here because a few people I was interviewing, I remember Clem Burke was one of them, Clem Burke of Blondie. The drummer. The drummer. Yeah. It's like you have to give the rascals schools they're due and a few people said this to me like i don't want to open another book and not find the rascals get their due now to give them their due commercially number one hit single in 65 with uh, good loving right number one hit single in 66 with grooving right or um unless that was 67 sorry start again good loving was 66 right grooving was 67 um and then they become the rascals and they have a number one with people got to be free uh. in 68 only new york band that can claim that really yeah there's there's nothing else bob dylan can't claim it loving spoonful can't claim that even and they were also that's another portion of the book so i mean i would really encourage i want to interrupt you Tony. Yeah. And i don't want to give away all the great stories because there's so many and you're touching yeah. on some of my favorite to really encourage people to read the book because you're just going it's just you're, you're going to smile You'll, be, you'll just be beaming when you read these stories, right. even if you don't know the music, the era that Tony is sharing with us. But uh, even the whole information, uh, the backstory and the fogs and yeah. Peter Stanfield coming from Milwaukee and infiltrating the East Village scene. I find that scene. scene yeah, actually. I found that scene particularly uh, exciting. You know, I would just if you if you don't mind, I was to to, to the the point about the rascals. Oh yeah, I'm is, sorry. Is I had I had gotten interviews with John Sebastian, who's very easygoing. I'd gotten Al Cooper, and I felt like the rascals was such a big part of New York City plugging in. I think the chapter is called like plug in, tu- you know, t- uh, tune up, rock out, something, rock on. Uh, I worked extra hard to get Felix Cavalieri from the Rascals. And it wasn't that he was avoiding me at all. It was one of those that he didn't know I was trying to get hold of him. And when I did get hold of him, the sweetest, sweetest person. And sometimes I think that the reason some groups don't get their due is that their leaders are too nice. I mean, you could say that about John Sebastian and the Loving Spoonful. John Sebastian is one of the nicest people in the world. And I think, you know, sometimes the people who are harder to get, who don't contribute to these books, Lou Reed, for example, I didn't get to interview. You know, they sometimes get a greater name in the in the long run. Felix is just so, so sweet. He was just like, man, I was just happy to be part of that scene. I'm happy to share in your book. I'm happy to have lived through it. And mm. I'm happy to still be making music. So maybe that speaks to some of it. But I was glad I went the extra mile because then I was able to actually quote Felix. Now, had you been, what was your familiarity with the Rascals? I had Very a peripheral. Peripheral. I had a double CD best of. I knew that they wore these crazy little Lord Fauntleroy suits <laughs> that, that made it a little hard to take them seriously. Right. And then I realized that actually they came up through this, um, you were talking about Hendrix, they came up through the, a midtown club scene that was a point when Southern Soul hit New York City at the same time that the British invasion hit. And the, there were a lot of like black musicians that could just rock the house. And to be a white band playing in those clubs, as Felix said, you know, so very, very simple. If you didn't get people dancing, you didn't get paid. Right. I, that simple. So they became one of the hottest bands in New York. Even though they were discovered playing a barge in Long Island, 
the barge they were playing was the, the, the hippest nightclub of its day, the Hamptons. Now, I, what I love, this is, a, this is another great little anecdote, is how Phil Spector gets turned on a couple times during <laughs> yeah. this era. This, and, and, he goes, and he goes out of his way to find these bands. He gets get basically dragged into the, and then the bands decide, well, we're going to do our own thing. Thanks, Very, Phil. very, very interesting. Thanks for raise, raising that point. And that also means you read the book, which is, which, is, which is great to know, because it is buried in there. Phil Spector, biggest producer of his day, the girl groups, we know he's a genius. Everybody knew he was a flawed character at the same time. People were wary of him. Lieber and Stoller had, had brought him to New York. They, he never even told them he was going to start his own label. So people are getting like you know wary of this guy. Um, he's had his day to some degree. The girl group's on the way out. Rock music is on the way in. And he shows up. Um, uh, the Loving Spoonful uh, f get their act together at the Night Owl on, on, uh, in Greenwich Village. He shows up to see them, wants to sign them. And their thing is that they've been doing this all along with their own guy who they expect to be their producer. And they're like, no, we're not actually going to change that. We, we know what we want to sound like. So there's no room for Phil Spector. He then goes <laughs> at the same, pretty much almost the same month. That? Oh my yeah, God. I know. But they're very, very smart people. Like John Sebastian, he said, even though he started every single day with Be My Baby, that was how he started his day, was... In a way, this is the best honor in the world, but I think we know better. And he, then he goes out to this barge in the Hamptons to go in because he's heard about the rascals are the hottest thing in town. And he goes out there and hangs backstage. And like Felix Cavalieri says, you know, we had him backstage and we had that guy. Same thing. He's like, I want to work with you. I want to sign you. And they've just got this thinking like, you know, I just don't know if if this That's is the this, sound. I don't know if this is the guy yeah. of the future. He ends up working with the modern folk quartet. And the records don't come out until I think the box set like 20 years right. later. So yeah. they were smart. Both they those knew. groups were very, very yeah. smart. Very yeah. smart. Yeah, that's great. And of course, you know, as we wind through the ages and you get into the whole folk rock scene mm -hmm. and, and how that expanded into uh, the West Coast scene. And mm -hmm. you talk about McGuinn and how, you know, he couldn't make it in New York. He had to go to L.A. to make yeah, it. McGuinn and McGuire just to get in higher. Yeah, and, and then the Mamas and the Papas, you yeah. know, Creek Alley and the whole connection mm -hmm. there. Uh, you just see that the music was never static. Right. You know, it, there was a young group of individuals that would migrate back into the city mm -hmm. and then claim their own turf yes. and reinvent a music that, you know, probably is always going back to the indigenous American art form, you mm -hmm. know, the folk stories. I'm not including jazz because that's completely right. indigenous as well. But, uh, you have well. We could say that the jazz rock was born here too with Miles. So I guess yeah, we, we could we could we could probably make that argument. And I skipped that one, by the way. Yeah, I was going to th say. I thought it was just too much to take. Too on. wily. Too yes, absolutely. Good, <laughs> good, good use. Good word there, Mark. Thanks. Uh, that'll Lovely. be in the sequel, yes. and, and I'm sure there'll be many more volumes of this book. Oh, I'm God, sure you I'm have enough. So sure. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, buy the book so they can justify it. They yeah. can pay you the advance. And please do. And you know, I wanted to say something about about the book when I did my first reading last last Saturday. And I realized, you know, this, I, I'm, you know, I'm going to do a little sales pitch here. This book retails for 1895. It's 450 pages with the notes. Took, took me like five years. I think books are really good value. I mean, you and I like wine, right? Yeah. You can't find a really interesting bottle of wine for 19 bucks. And if you do, it's going to be gone in half an hour. I mean, you're going to open it and go, wow, man, let's have this. Yeah. Well, well, that was good. Yeah, A exactly. book stays on your bookshelf. You well, know? that's the thing with this it, book. You can pick it up at any point yeah. and randomly find something that's just an extraordinary anecdote that then gets you deeper into the book. Right. 
you know and that's, that's i, I love books like that that's good you to know, know and it's yeah. you know and, and if you're it's archival as well as you said it's evergreen yeah so it's not like you're making this stuff up yeah i think you know i think i'd like to believe that that people will support writers and and you know the same way that we support our bands and we buy t-shirts when we go to their gigs you know I think, well, you know, well, you know this books, leads to a, a bigger yeah. philosophical discussion that gets sure. away from your book, well, but it's fine. the consumption of digital com, uh, digital media yeah. and how we've come so far and how we've lost, you know, the ability to, although there are the small narrow cast pockets where people still like vinyl, mm-hmm. you know, they still like painting, they still mm-hmm. like, it doesn't all have to be digital. There is a connection, a human element attached mm-hmm. and reading. And God knows last uh, couple of weeks I was reading that, uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, ad sales have outstripped digitally uh, periodical ad sales. Okay. So, you know, we're, we've reached that tipping, tipping point. point yeah. So, you know, what's next? What magazines are going to survive? Are they going to be so niche mm-hmm. that you actually need them? Or are we going to have new devices like the Kimball and I guess Apple's creating something? How do you get people to say, hey, look, this I, I need a bookshelf. Mm-hmm. I ju- my wife's always screaming, get rid of the CDs. I'm like, no, I need those no. CDs. Because if my digital archive goes out on my hard drive, I've got the backups. Actually, my, my wife knows better than to, to, <laughs> to suggest that. But that's because they're in my office. They're yeah. exclusively in my office. Yeah. She doesn't have to look at them. They're not all over the house. Um, <laughs> I I can only... I am a, I am a half... The, the cup is half full person. I can only cling to my belief that books have been around since the days of the, the Greeks and the Romans and that they're not going to disappear overnight. Um, you know, this is my first book that's available in digital form here on a Kindle. So um, I don't have a Kindle. That's not because I'm, I'm a Luddite. It's because they're 300 bucks. Um, and I don't want to spend... publishers should buy you one, damn it. It would be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, they probably would give me a free download, I guess, if I had a <laughs> Kindle. Like, can I, get, can I get a free copy of my download? But I, I just, I think books will survive. I think that, um, you know, magazines will survive. I was down, uh, I live up in the Catskills now. I was down um, last week and staying in Brooklyn. And, you know, I came home with like six Brooklyn newspapers and uh, free newspapers and magazines. And one of them had gone, the Park Slope Reader had gone from color to pretty crappy black and white. And actually was not as good as it had been. But the others were holding their own. Right. Brooklyn Rail, the Park Slope Courier, the Brooklyn Paper. And I'm mentioning these because it said to me that where you have an audience, you know, the newsprint will survive, where there's right. an audience that's willing to read. Uh, so, I, you know, I guess I'm not trying to be snobbish, but where there is an, in, you know, an interest in the written word, I think the print medium We're just survive. getting old, dude. Come on. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I still see, no, I still I see I this mean, stuff happening. I, I think, I think we're what okay. I th- yeah, I think we're all right. When I see it on the subway are these shorter-form newspapers, yes. the, you know, the Metro and AM New York, yeah. where they're consolidated sound bites. Well, that's the scary part is, is there a market among younger people for a, a, a book about new 50 years of New York City music? Can they wade through 400 pages or do they need it delivered in, t- in tweets? Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that is maybe the question because I think the book form will survive you know, you're right, AM and Metro, and we, then we have three or four daily newspapers, but the, the, the conversation gets shorter, the sentences get shorter, right. you know. And even the physical connection, I was talking to a friend who's like, I was at the U2 show and people were just tweeting through the whole show. Yes, I know. They're it's not strange. even communing with the music that's no. happening. I know. And it's like, I don't know. I went to, and I have to admit, I was doing this, but then you, then you become like, you know, taking pictures of the people taking pictures. I went to a paper <laughs> magazine party because, you know, uh, I got the invite, and uh, Katy Perry was playing. 
And uh, yeah, so it's it's one of these like just because I come down to New York City once a month, and if I can go to something fun like that, it actually takes care of my other twenty nine days of going to bed at ten thirty at night. <laughs> and uh, so Katy Perry comes on. You know, there's only like a hundred people jumping in front of her because yeah, everybody else is too cool, and ninety five of them have her. They're watching her through their camera. I know. It's amazing, isn't it? So then I'm taking pictures of the people taking the pictures because for me, that's what I want to print on my website is this is where we've come to. And I'm like, how many mirrors are involved in this? And at what point do you just... This, by the way, is something nice about when you step outside of New York City for concerts, it's not the same. People actually still watch through their own eyes. Yeah. So it's a very New York... And I assume it's... I know it's the same in London because I go to London. But in other cities, you know, I... I went to see Bruce Springsteen at Saratoga Springs and nobody was bothering with the digital camera. They were checking out the music, young and old. That's they, great. Yeah, That's that was reassuring. That was yeah. very reassuring. ADD, man. New York's too ADD. I think so. Yeah. What did you say? ADD. What? <laughs> Are you talking to me? Yeah. Wait, I'm Sorry, I was looking at your you shoulder. Were tweeting your, you were yeah. tweeting somebody that you're doing this interview. Thanks. Yes. <laughs> but getting, all right, let's get back to <laughs> the book. I mean, this is fun. We could go all day and, and it'll right. be fun tonight when we hopefully... Uh, these young hipsters in Brooklyn, we uh, sh- share some uh, stories yeah. uh, when their parents and grandparents yes. were on the music scene. But uh, one of the other crucial elements in the book, you 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 you, you bring up Patti Smith, and for me, uh, I guess I must have been just starting high school when her record broke. It was one of the one of the most mind blowing records I'd ever heard up to that young up to that stage of my young life, uh, and you. I mean, you talked to the point about what Patti Smith represented, not only to the world as a rock star or, you know, a rock icon, but to the New York scene. Yes, very, very, very important. And it's a crossover of, oh, my gosh, there was one chapter that I had a hard time with, and I actually was thrilled with how it finally came out. It's it's the kind of the glitter chapter. And you say, Patti Smith, glitter? But she was part of that because what happened is, in the late 60s, when rock and roll got too big, after Woodstock, you know, it's Altamont, and then the bands are playing bigger places, and there's a gap, there's a void, and that void was filled, and this is, this is relevant, I'm not getting off subject, that void was filled by the theatre in New York City. It was filled by the ridiculous theatre, right. which was essentially theatre of the absurd, and it was filled but with um, uh, people like Jackie Curtis writing her plays, his, her plays, and right. Candy Darling, and uh, Holly Woodlawn, and, and these people. And they were all f- uh, from the, the, the Warhol factory. All from the Warhol factory, and yeah. Paddy Smith was part of that, and Paddy right. Smith appeared in a couple of these plays. So did... Um, uh, Sam Shepard, right? Well, she was she had an affair with Sam right. Shepard. There is one good, there is actually one great story that, my gosh, she was trying to find her way in New York City. Very ambitious, Paddy Smith. I mean, I mean, great artist, but very ambitious. And before she really settled into a niche as a poet, you know, she had an affair with Sam Shepard and tried to, and wrote a play with him about it. And I, he, I think he failed to show on the opening night because he was so, I think, if I've got this all correct, he's kind of embarrassed about like what he'd actually put out there and what he confessed to. Um, and so it closed like straight away because he, he, she, she, they wrote it together. And then he's like, what the hell am I doing? What did I just admit to? Now today that would be a reality show. But back then people... <laughs> Yeah, and Sam Shepard, by the way, was in the Holy Mode Around Us, who you referenced Absolutely. Earlier. And I think started out as a bartender at the Village Gate. And uh, I've seen many of his plays, and I've been fortunate and enough to see some of them at La Mama, right. which and was a very fertile... And that's part of this whole story. This is absolutely part of this whole story. So Paddy Smith, you know, comes to town in as early as 67 or so, friends with Robert Maplethorpe, 
um, lives with him, lives at the Chelsea Hotel, friends with Jim Carroll. Uh, but the friendship she makes with Lenny Kay is the one that sticks. And they first play together, I think it's in 1971, at um, St. Mark's in the Bowery. Right. But then they don't play together for a couple of years, and that's when Paddy Smith is off trying to write plays, and she, she lives with Alan Lanier from Blue Oyster Colt and right. writes some lyrics for them. Then she gets back with Lenny Kay at a point when nobody knows what's going on with music. And this is why I make this point about the theater, because there was a point in the early 70s where in New York City, the view was the new theater is the new rock and roll. Right. And why, why not? I was mentioning Paddy Smith and we were mentioning these characters from the Warhol factory. Jane County, the future Jane County, right. Wayne, Wayne County at the time, was writing his own plays and, right. and doing this stuff. Um, and well, Bowie was doing it in the UK. And Bowie was doing it. And then so there's this great story. You know, Warhol raises his, uh, his head uh, many a time in this story. After the Velvet Underground, when the theater thing takes off, good old Andy Warhol says, I can do this as well as anybody. I can certainly be as successful as anybody. So he takes the top play, uh, director, Anthony Ingrassia, takes his own tape recordings of Bridget Polk, um, which is very ironic because she used to record everybody else, um, takes his tape, says to Anthony Ingrassia, write a play around all these tape recorded conversations. They write Pork. And then they take Pork to England, where, of course, it's considered totally obscene. Um, but David Bowie shows up at the Roundhouse where they're performing it, sits there every single night because David Bowie has just released an album that has a song called Andy Warhol on it. Has a song Funky called Dory. Yeah, has a song called Queen Bitch, which is uh, um, absolutely a Velvet Underground ripoff. Right, and he has a song on there called Song to, to Bob Dylan. Right, so he wants to get in on this. So when he comes over to New York to sign his new record deal, he's like, "Please introduce me to Andy. Introduce me to Lou Reed." Next, you know, Bowie's taken off, and he brings Lou Reed over to London and produces um, Walk on the Wild Side, which is a tribute. Yep. To those very characters that created ridiculous theatre, Bowie then is wearing his, you know, Starman um, uh, Ziggy Stardust. And glitter is full blown. And glitter is full blown. Where did yeah. all this glitter stuff start? Arguably in the ridiculous theatre. Yeah, that's a great. That's a great connection. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And then so Patty, Patty finds her way, and she and finds she, her way with Lenny. As Kay. a poet, though, yes. with with you know, and and she's borrowing the sonic capabilities. Obviously, Kale helps with this of what the Velvet Underground had done ten years earlier. Yeah. And marrying it with a woman who is not your typical girl group chick. Yeah. You know, she's got this androgynous veneer. She's got the androgynous thing. And something a lot of people said to me, I didn't see her in the early days. I've seen her subsequently, and I would say it still holds true that, that she was a shaman. Interesting. I had a few people say that. Like, if you saw Patti Smith. Uh, how she would channel spirits. Channel. Now, see, I saw her in the late, I guess, 78, 79 in Cleveland, and Certainly, it was mind blowing if you're growing up in Ohio. And you know, Ohio, we had you know a lot of interesting music. Per Ubu, Devo. You know, we had our our whole world of interesting music. But uh, Patti Smith was you could just tell she was something special. Yeah. And I don't think until PJ, for me personally, until PJ Harvey came along, that you had that same kind of charismatic right front woman. Yeah. Who was really exposing herself yeah. emotionally, emotionally in her, in her music, and I think that that blending of poetry that was coming out of like you know the St. Marks and the Bowery scene, uh, Mercer Arts Center and the yeah, Dolls, and with a kind of jazz influence, with a wild space rock, with a back to the basics because Lenny Kay had put together the Nuggets compilations. Right. Yeah. So oh, very important. That's a very important connection. Yeah, because that was you know so Lenny Kay knows how to play how to play Gloria. You know, I right. mean, so they were taking this music all over the, over the place. They, they, you know, Lenny was saying to me, you know, we never knew what we had. We just, we just knew that we were doing something. We didn't right. really know how it would fit in. And I think, you know, Paddy 
Paddy obviously gets to a point that people are like, okay, this girl's not joking anymore. She's been on the scene for long enough that we were, weren't sure that she had it. But Because she does a lot of like, you know, she writes for the East Village other or, um, sorry, the Soho Weekly News. She writes for the Soho right. Weekly News. She's following to some degree. She's, she, I, I'll, I'll be honest here, you know, because I think, you, you, you know, not to just praise everybody to the heights. For a lot of the early 70s, she's chasing. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm within my rights to say that. I think historically you can see her chasing after what's going on. And then there's a point where her and Lenny find their thing and they get ahead of it. Do you see what I'm saying? They, fi- they find their thing and now they're ahead of the game. And, so that's do you, but it, when, and this is before Kale? Or do you think yeah, Kale this gave is, this the shape they needed? Was no, he the George Kale. Martin? Okay. No, I think they had it before Kale. What, what Lenny Kay was saying that John Kale brought to them was um, a discipline that they didn't have. Okay. And was like... They were saying, we want to kind of just go off and believe us, when we play live, like magic happens. And he's like, well, the studio is kind of different, man. It's, <laughs> uh, you're going to have to work to earn that magic. And so they had a lot of, they apparently they made a, had a very tough time making that record. And yet, it, as you say, it came out as one of the great albums. And it yeah. wasn't a smooth process. Uh, John Cale drove them very, very, very hard. And I think it worked. I want to make a point about, Paddy Smith, the horses, it's the album cover as well, is monumental. Obviously. Because it's the first time, it's a maple thought shot, shot, as a lot of people might know, but it's uh, the first time that a woman is willing to appear on an album cover, kind of looking like a, like a, like, not necessarily like a man, but like she, she ain't willing to look like you expect a woman She's to She's not look. lipsticked up. No. Very, very important. And I had in an earlier draft trying, kind of written about the birth of women's lib, which was a bunch of New York hardliners who went down to a um, Miss whatever it was a Miss New Jersey or even Miss USA contest in Atlantic City and protested and burned the bras um, and that was actually the start of the whole women's lib thing so that also kind of comes out of New York City it ended right. up being edited out but even the women's lib thing started from there well you know you, you so I mean all these scenes influence each other it yes. influences the art it influences the music the theater yeah. it all is influential and yeah. you know when you only have uh, so many avenues today. Of course, we don't. You know, we're so overwhelmed with digital noise. We, are. we don't know where to turn. It's hard to galvanize a scene because mm-hmm. there's so much noise. But back then, if you had that scene, if you were at, you know, La Mama or the Mercer Arts Center or you know, next CBGBs, you had a scene. You had kindred spirit. You mm-hmm. could hang out and. and feel like you belonged to yes. a country club that would accept you. That's a great way of putting it. And you know, you mentioned CBs and. The people who were part of that, my God, they look back so fondly on that. And I'm not saying any more fondly, by the way, than the people who used to play in Washington Square Park on the Sundays when that scene was first starting straight after the Second World War. I thoroughly believe every generation you know, should have its own scene and, and, and it should always be better than it is now. Yeah. You know, uh, continually. But the CBs people, they look back on that as just how did we get two or three years before the media discovered us? We, you know, we just we hung out there. And we, we just, it was our club. They and entertained we, each other. We entertained, we'd all be playing for each other. I mean, the scene was so small that if you weren't there every night, somebody would be like, where were you last night? You weren't, you weren't at C- <laughs> you went to Max's? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Like, yeah. you traitor, you. Yeah. And they would watch the bands and then they would go outside and hang out on the street because CB's was about the only club in the city that let you do that, let you hang out and then come back in again. Nowadays you do it to smoke, but then they would do it to actually as, Gary Valentine wrote in his own book, you know, what you do is in between bands, you'd run, run off to Avenue B and score some drugs and come back. <laughs> you know, I think one of the things that may have been lost in that whole scene is, you know, obviously Blondie was the biggest act from that scene. but not, Yeah, and at the time they were the ones that everybody thought were not going to make it. Right. Uh, but for me, 
songwriting wise, the Ramones mm-hmm. always, I always felt like God, they were so great at co-oping Beach Boy songs, and then just giving them that that caffeinated energy that's yeah. New York. And somebody, I was doing a reading last night, and somebody asked me a question about, you know, are you busting any myths in this book like you did in your Keith Moon book? And I was thinking, no, I'm not really. But one thing that I'm really trying to pull out with this about the Ramones in particular, you know, I grew up in the UK where the Ramones hit with punk rock, and we thought they were these wild, tough guys from New York, <laughs> like, uh, you know, young. We, we, we were football hooligans, and we thought they were American gangsters. Right. Now, a couple of them were tough. Dee Dee had a messed up childhood. Right. Johnny was, uh, a me- as, as Tommy Ramone told me for the book, you know, he could be mean as a rattlesnake, and Tommy was his best friend. So, you know, that's a perspective. But the Ramones were not young. They were well into their 20s. Um, Tommy, they'd all been to the same school right. um, at different times, all of them, Forest Hills High. They'd been in bands in the 60s, a long way back. They treated what they were doing as an art project. They came through the art scene. They came through the Warhol minimalist scene. So what they were doing with the Ramones was back to basics. Mm-hmm. It was trying to be the Beach Boys. It was trying to be British Invasion. It was also trying to be the Bay City Rollers. There was also an incredible understanding of their sense of humor. And when people, and I remember in the UK when Tony Parsons, a well-known music writer, you know, first accused the Ramones of being complete morons. They were not morons. No, they he knew the yeah. what they were doing. And the guy who produced their first album, Craig Leon, or co-produced it, um, said to me, you know, what, was, what he found very interesting was that he almost thought they were prog rock because instead of seeing 15 one-minute songs, he saw a 24-minute uh, performance. Yeah, I love That's a great quote. Yeah. That's fantastic. And they knew what they were doing with yeah. this. And I, I've watched some of this footage where the, the stuff breaks down into chaos and they're shouting at each other. And I'm like, <laughs> I am not sure this isn't a put-on. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I had Devo because I was growing up in Akron, yeah. and they were an art school project. And, you know, they would play to 20 guys and gals in mm-hmm. a biker bar in Akron, and people just didn't get it, man. Yeah. You know, and they were just taking the piss out of everyone. Yeah. And then, you know, it accelerated. But they came to New York to make it. Yes. Before they moved to L.A. Right. And they tell some great stories about the New York scene and, right. and how everyone was hanging out. Because it wouldn't be uncommon to be at CB's and see Iggy mm-hmm. and Lou Reed and David Bowie, and John Lennon. Because yeah. they were all, you know, they're all hanging out with the other well, musicians. Well, there's a point where Lou Reed and David Bowie latch onto Club 82, which right. was the uh, the Glitter Club that was owned by the Mafia, as were a lot of underground clubs in their day. Um, they both, when that scene took off, they both showed up there with transvestite dates on their arms. I love it. Um, and yeah, people did start showing up at CB's. And you know, um, this this is a story worth, worth telling because, you know, how does punk get its name? Well, Suicide... The act suicide were calling their music a punk mass, not mess, but mass right. uh, um, back in 7071. But in terms of coming up with the name punk, it was uh, um, John and legs, yeah, John and legs. And the story about them starting their fanzine, punk, I love this, this is a great story because Lou Reed is hanging out at CBGB's because this is where the scene is at, and Lou Reed is Lou Reed, but he also wants to check out what's going on. And uh, legs is like. Lou, let's interview you. I can imagine you doing this, Mark. Yeah. Yeah, like, like Lou Reed, we're going to interview you. Somehow he says yes. I guess you can't say no to Legs too easily. Anybody who knows Legs McNeil a, will yeah. understand. He, wrote, he co-wrote Please Kill Me. He's a bit too central in, in the story himself. So they take him to a nearby diner or Phoebe's next door and uh, ask these incredibly rude questions. And <laughs> Lou Reed, of course, is the king of rude. Yeah. And he's, he's kind of caught. And... Um, uh, the 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 uh, so it's him and John and I've momentarily forgotten that the woman who's with them who's also a partner in punk. Right, she's the photographer. 
I don't think it's Roberta Bailey I'm talking about. I think there's somebody else, and we could almost look it up. She's quoted, and that's not fair of me to not remember her name. But she's terrified that this interview is just a disaster. It and could she be a punch-up. Yeah, and she's like, this is like the worst interview I've ever seen. And then she gets the first issue back. And John has caricatured Lou Reed on the cover. And inside, they've quote, they printed the interview verbatim. So that Lou Reed comes across exactly as he is. There's no niceties. Right. There's no attempt to say, you know, this guy's talented, so we'll cut him a break. And she said it was when she saw that interview that she's like, this magazine's going to work. Yeah, absolutely. And they called it Punk, and they put up these fly posters, like Punk is coming. And a lot of the people are on the CBC and were like, oh, my God, there's a band calling itself Punk? Because oh. <laughs> there had been a band that had opened for Kiss called Street Punk. And I I've seen that. a picture of them, yeah. and their hair is down to their... Well, that's the, the, you know, that's, that's, that's one for, uh, I mean, that's been the big debate. Who coined the word punk rock? Mm -hmm. You know, Malcolm, I'm, you know, does Malcolm give props to, uh, to uh, Legs? Probably not. No, I think Suicide deserved the credit. They're yeah. the first. They got it from Iggy because I think Legs a McNeil. A punk was a guy who was just like, you know, the, the hoodlum in your school yeah. when we were growing the up. The word punk was showing up way earlier in my research. It was showing up in the 40s and 50s right. as a description for all kinds of people. Right. But then I believe that it's none other than Lester Bangs calls Iggy Pop a punk in a review. Mm. And Suicide Boy, they that. had a great, the people that don't know, Lester and, and Lou had a great relationship. Yes, <laughs> In print, in Cream Magazine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a lot of lot of these connections, you know, it's got to be tough for somebody listening to this going, I can't keep up. I don't really know Suicide. We, you know, if you don't, you Alan should check Vega, them out. Alan Vega, Suicide, Magnificent. Yeah. The last, the first, okay, so who coined punk? Probably Suicide. What was the last group on the Lower East Side to get a record deal in 1977? Suicide. Um, really? Yeah. And their album comes out at the end of 1977. And I want to say this, you know, it, 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 I remember when they opened for The Clash in Britain. I didn't see them, but they were getting literally pulled off the stage. I mean, they were lucky to escape with their lives. Now, when you listen to it, you go, oh, so that's where OMD got it from. Exactly. That's where Depeche Mode got it from. That's and it was two guys. Two guys. And it actually sounds, most of it sounds really melodic now. Yeah. Like, apart from it Frankie really Teardrop, yeah. most of the songs are two and a half, three minute songs. Just like prototype synth pop, but at the time it was the wildest. Oh, most, of course you know, it was. It like was nobody, radical. nobody had could cope. Like John Cage, you know, when he was yeah. doing classical. And you know, for all that we think that you know, I mean, you were giving Patti Smith her credit, and we're giving the Ramones their credit, but those people at CBGBs and at Max's couldn't get their heads around a duo that didn't use guitars, bass. They had like one guy on keyboards with tapes, and one guy singing, speaking, shouting. They Nobody could get their heads around that. Yeah. Now it seems very normal. Yeah. All these bands are two-member bands. The Black Keys, of the course, White Stripes. Yes. We just, yeah. you know. People could not get their heads yeah. around it. But that Suicide Record I'm is glad you brought that up because they, they are another band like the Rascals that don't get their day. They are. And I'm actually really glad. I'm doing a, a kind of a event, like not really a reading, but with the Brooklyn Public Library at the Grand Army Plaza. And um, they actually came and said, you know, uh, we'd like to have somebody else appear with, with Tony and any chance he could get Alan Vega? And so I asked, and he's doing it with me. Oh, Alan's great. He yeah. was at Gary Lucas's Gods and Monsters reunion yeah. show and did some music with him. And I'm going to close out with this because yeah. this was the other great thing which I loved, and I'm only doing it as an effigy to him. Soupy Sales passed away, and he helped name the Rascals. Yeah, the Young Rascals. Yes. Is that great? That's a yes. great story. And those of us of a certain age, Soupy was our kind of TV guy. At one, do you know the story where he said, "Take a, a dollar out of your parents' wallet and mail it to me." Got him fired. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, these, you know, Felix Cavalieri says the thing is he came up to name the Rascals 
and uh, they were just about to release their first record, which wasn't Good Loving. There was a, a non-hit before Good Loving. They signed to Atlantic. First white rock group to be signed to Atlantic, right. by the way. And um, somebody finds out... I ain't going to eat up my heart anymore. Was that the That's song? The one. Right. Well done. Well done. Uh, they, somebody finds out there's a harmonica rascals, and they're probably right. going to claim ownership to the name. And so the rascals are like, but, but we're the rascals. We're known as, like, we, we've They've been, been gigging all over the place, the man. clubs with the hottest group in New York. And somebody says, the young rascals. And Felix says, you know, I wish we'd gone with, like, the green rascals. Or, or I mean, the, you know, the hippopotamus rascals. <laughs> we never lived down. Once we put on those yeah. little Lord Fauntleroy suits and we were known as the young rascals, we and never Maybe that's that why down. they don't get their due. They don't have that hip veneer. I think there's some of that. Yeah, I really yeah. do, yeah. Well, Tony, um, I would encourage all of my friends and everyone who's listening to this podcast to pick up your book. Go to Tony's website. Tony's, I'm sure he'll answer your email questions. Uh, and I hope you, you, we have a couple of more volumes of this book. Truly, I mean, let's take it up to the current day music scene. Uh, we'll see what happens with, with, with that. I want to say with the website, I'm putting up um, an appendix for each chapter kind of on a weekly wow. basis right now. And the appendix is You don't like doing work, huh? <laughs> uh, well, what I wanted to do this when I was researching the book, let me just close out with this. I started using Google Maps to track where all these clubs were. So, and then you can really see the concentration of talent. And then I realized this would be really easy to share online once the book is out. Fantastic. Um, and I also am putting up MP3s, um, just 30 second clips through Well, the I was going to ask you that. If there was ever a book that should have a, C, uh, you know, a CD or you know, MP3 files attached somehow, this well, then the go to my website. It's ijamming.net, I-J-A-M-M-I-N-G.net, and just follow through the uh, the top of the front page to the link for the book, and then you can start going. And you know, for the first chapter, I did two playlists. Um, nice. And it, I'm enjoying doing it because you can hear from one 30-second clip to the next. You can hear the change in music or hear what I'm talking about in the book. So I would, and, and then you get the maps as well, and then maybe a bit more material if I have the time for it. And for our ADD society, that's perfect, man. Oh, it is. They can multitask like anything. Yeah, and <laughs> I, I hate to say I, I tweet. I, I apologize, I tweet, but yeah. I tweet. I'm going to tweet right after this, man. Right. And then it gets posted to my Facebook page, and I've just done it from a tweet. Right. Gosh. And I'm, I get I get a hard time from people for not participating in Facebook, but I've been running a website for 10 years, and it takes a lot of time. And I, I like the Twitter is the opposite for me. It keeps me sharp and focused. Like, you've got to just do it that quick That's and move it. on. And, and say something of, of relevance and yes. importance. Yes. Tony, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, Dusty. This has been a treat. It's been a lot of fun. It really has been. And uh, folks, pick up Tony's book, All Hopped Up. And ready to go. Music from the streets of New York, 1927 to 1977. We'll see you soon. If you enjoyed my interview with Mr. Tony Fletcher, please tell your friends and have them and you subscribe to our iTunes podcast. Just type in Culture Cat in your iTunes web directory browser. And if you like our programming, you might enjoy our written reviews in all areas of the arts. You can visit culturecatch.com every single day. This is Dusty Wright. Converge is the word.